Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plot Lines. I'm your host, Connor, and with me is a special guest. Thank you for coming on, Joseph Pierce. How are you doing? My, my pleasure, Connor. It's good to be on. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, so I don't know how many of my listeners know about you. So if you could give a little bit of background on yourself before we before we go in. Sure, I'll give you the one minute biography. Um, so I'm a, a native of England, as my abs as my accent might betray. Uh, I am when I, my last years in England as a full time writer, but I came to the States to take up a position teaching literature at Ave Maria University or college as it then was. I've since taught at other institutions such as Thomas More College of Liberal Arts and Aquinas College in Nashville. I'm currently director of book publishing at the Augusta Institute. But uh, I, I consider myself primarily to be a writer um, and I've written um, about 25 books now, um, mostly biographies and mostly biographies uh, of writers. So I write about writers, so to speak. And so I've written biographies of uh, 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 writers such as Shakespeare, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, um, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, uh, uh, and others. So, oh, um, yeah, so that's basically, that's it in a, in a nutshell. Thank you very much for coming on again. Um, which book, which book that you wrote is your favorite, do you think? Well, actually, when I'm asked that, um, I often give the answer of a book no one's heard of. <laughs> I read a biography of a poet, uh, a convert to Catholicism, a poet called Roy Campbell, uh, and it has different titles. The, the title of the U.S. edition is um, Unafraid, of, Unafraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, The Friends and Enemies of Roy Campbell. I just think I did a really good job with that particular biography, and I traveled to Portugal and had lots of interviews with both of his daughters and granddaughter and uh, friends and there's just lots of material that had not been unearthed by anybody prior to that and uh, it's a very interesting story the story of his life and I think I told it well um, it was the fruit of having cut my teeth on lots of other biographies so that by the time I got to this one I really knew what I was doing so that I often say that's that and people look nonplussed because they don't even know who Roy Campbell is but that's the answer to the question. Yeah, I've heard of him, but I really don't know any, anything about him. Uh, I've only seen him mentioned in, uh, I think, is it Literary Converts? Yeah, he's mentioned Literary Converts somewhat, and that, from my own work, that would be where you'd see him most uh, mentioned, except for, obviously, my book about him. But he also was an honorary member of the Inklings, you know, the, the literary uh, group centered on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien writes very favorably about him. Lewis, on the other hand, at first did not like him at all, but became friends. So it's, yeah, it's a very interesting character. Now a word from our affiliate, Bishop Sheen Rosaries. You've probably worn through the chain of your cheap plastic rosary. Other rosaries simply can't stand up to the wear and tear of everyday life. Bishop Sheen Rosaries are made of solid metal beads and paracord to withstand any condition and are backed with a lifetime warranty. Upgrade your rosary to a Bishop Sheen rosary made to fit your lifestyle or buy one for a friend. Each rosary sold supplies two weeks of food for a school kid in Uganda. You use the exclusive link down below to help support our efforts here at Plotlines. The link will take you to sheenrosaries.com. Be sure to use the code PLOTLINES10. PLOTLINES10. Yeah, well, uh, we're here to talk about uh, Brideshead Revisited, and yeah. the author Evelyn Waugh is a very 
peculiar figure, I think, amongst uh, Catholic writers. Uh, what, what do you think about him? Well, I think that uh, very few people are going to suggest that he's going to be canonized. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, there, there, the reason I haven't written a biography of him is there's uh, already a lot of material out about him. So his diaries are published, um, his um, uh, his letters are published, and there are a couple of good biographies. And where where the the main biographies are deficient and defective in their the way they treat his Catholicism, there's actually a, a biographical treatment of him by Douglas Lane Patey which looks at his Catholicism very well. So, you know, everything you need to know about even more is out there already, which is why I've only really written about him uh, in terms in literary converts. Uh, but I have written about Bryce Heavy Visited, which I honestly believe is the greatest novel of the 20th century. Yeah. What, uh, so what is your, your favorite aspect of Brideshead? Well, he, he achieved something which uh, he himself says in the preface to the second edition, was a presumptuously large or presumptuously ambitious and that is to uh, depict uh, the workings of divine grace in the lives of a disparate group of characters and it's very difficult to uh, bring forth uh, the supernatural dimension of reality which is which is part of reality it's very difficult to do that convincingly without sounding uh, forced or preachy and he manages to, to make, effectively, the protagonist of, of Bryce Heavy Visited is, uh, is God himself. Because uh, that invisible thread uh, that, 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 that um, Moore alludes to from, the, from a line from Chesterton's Father Brown story, uh, that the, 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 the God's grace in the lives of each individual is like an invisible thread on a fishing line, and it can be, it can be tugged back in basically through the experience of suffering. So he, he's masterful in the way that, if you like, the protagonist of the novel is someone who we never see. Uh, in other words, the invisible presence of, of, of divine grace. Uh, and to achieve that uh, at all uh, is, 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 a, is a masterful achievement. To achieve it as brilliantly as he does, in Bride said, uh, marks him as one of the greatest novelists uh, of all time. And that novel is one of the greatest novels of all time. How much do you think uh, Charles Ryder, the main character, is based on Waugh himself? Well, Waugh, of course, was at pains uh, at the beginning of the novel to distance himself from any characters. But there's no doubt at all that, uh, that Waugh dips into his own personal life experience uh, in adding flesh to the bones of Charles Ryder's character. So certainly the, the way that Charles describes his own uh, education uh, at a high school level uh, resonates very, very, very closely with War's experience at Lansing College as, as, as a child, as a high school student. Uh, and then uh, certain aspects of Charles Ryder's experience at Oxford also resonate with Evelyn War's own experience as an Oxford undergraduate. So uh, there's no doubt at all that he drew upon life experience in the novel, as a novelist must, uh, but especially in his characterization of, of, of Charles Ryder. How, how do you think uh, sort of, or what would you expect from a secular uh, uh, professor when it comes to teaching Brideshead? 
Well, I would expect honesty and integrity. I would expect a, a, an effort of objectivity. Unfortunately, in our postmodern culture, the, the relativists don't believe in the existence of objectivity. Um, it's basically everything is subject to, to, to the power of, of the individual will, which means that they give themselves permission to uh, what I call textual abuse. They, they don't take what's there objectively and verifiably from the actual word, words of the text, understood both in their integrity and their entirety. In other words, what's happening in detail as, as uh, within the context of what's happening as a whole. They don't look at it in that objective way. They look at it to pursue whatever agenda they want to, to massage out of it. Yeah, I feel like with students as well, it's uh, more along the lines of, I see what I want to see, and then I say that that's what is. Yeah, it's a narcissistic exercise. Basically, you only ever use a literary text as a mirror to reflect back to you your own pride and prejudice. Uh, and, and, the pro and the problem with that, of course, is you don't, you're, you're not allowing yourself to grow. Because the only way you actually get bigger as a person in terms of wisdom uh, and, ex and genuine, authentic experience is to allow the other to speak to you. Um, and so we should walk into uh, a magnificent edifice like Bryce had revisited, as if we're walking into a beautiful cathedral, and we should do it in such a way that we are humble enough to get on our knees and let the beauty of it speak to us, rather than try to squeeze it into the ugliness of our own egocentrism. Yeah, I, uh, I'm glad you said the words pride and prejudice, because that's another book that my, uh, that my teacher in my class has already gone over which is really interesting. Well, it, it, what I find ironic, and it's humorous in a tragicomic sense, is that Pride and Prejudice is normally misread because of Pride and Prejudice on the part of the reader, uh, which of course is the complete opposite of what Jane Austen is trying to say. They know that Pride does lead to prejudice and prejudice prevents us from being able to see the truth. Yeah. Um, so how would you characterize Charles Ryder's relationship with Sebastian Flight? Well, the, the, the most important thing, I mean, we, we, before we get ourselves bogged down in detail, let's, let's see where these characters fit into a bigger picture. First of all, let's go back to War's insistence that the theme of the novel is the working of divine grace, right? So that's what we're looking for. That's the protagonist. That's, that's, that's what everything else is subject to, to that theme. Then we have to see Brideshead itself, of which, of course, Sebastian Flight is a representative and the one who gains Charles access to Brideshead. Brideshead itself symbolically, as the name, which was invented by Evening War, suggests, is a, a, a signifier for the church and the church, the Catholic church, as um, understood metaphysically as the mystical body of Jesus Christ. So Brideshead, who's the Brideshead? It's the bridegroom. Now, even that statement will be seen as sexist, and I, 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 that, that, that means nothing to me because that's it's just not, nothing to do with the text. Mm -hmm. So basically, Bryce said is symbolic of the church. Sebastian is the person who introduces Charles to the metaphorical Bryce said, which is the Catholic Church. That is, that's his significant role. Um, do they have a sinful hedonistic relationship in the early chapters of the book? Yes. Um, is the story largely a part about the conversion of both those characters from that hedonism towards um, uh, uh, an authentic uh, living uh, of a self-sacrificial life in, in the understanding that love is always self-sacrificial? Both of them learn to love. 
Um, and that really is what it's all about. And, and selfish gratification of desire is not love. Yeah. It, it, the whole element of the flights is very interesting just because they're, you know, a aristocratic Catholic family. Uh, but if my understanding is correct, uh, they are the uh, flights are not originally Catholic in the sense of like before Lady Marshmain marries Lord Marshmain, he is a Protestant. Am I correct? Yeah, you have to understand English history, and 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 as it happens, I've just finished writing in the last few weeks um, uh, a history of Catholic England from the first to the twenty first century. So this is all fresh in my mind. Um, that the 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 English old English Catholic families, the recusant families, of which Lady Marshmain's family is, um, they had suffered 300 years of intense persecution from the 1530s to the 1680s uh, in England, and uh, sorry, from the 1530s to the 1820s in England, so 300 years, uh, the first 150 years of which, from the 1530s to the 1680s, involved priests and laity being put to violent death merely for the practice of their Catholic faith. So that uh, understanding of, um, of the sacrifices that the recusant Catholic families, particularly the recusant Catholic aristocratic families, of which Lady Marshmain's family is one, needs to feed into our understanding of the church as it is received by uh, the four children of Lady Marshmain. Um, and remember, it's she who is the presence of Catholicism, um, um, because of course, uh, um, that the, the, uh, Lord Marshmain has abandoned ship and uh, is living with a concubine in, in Venice. So he's, his absence is what's felt. And of course, his reconciliation with the church is one of the most beautiful parts of the novel. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with uh, Eamon Duffy? Yes. I recently read his book on, uh, I think it's the fires of faith in uh, in Mary Tudor's time. Yeah, yeah, that's that's his third book. I, I don't know that one as well. Um, I, I know Stripping of the Altars and the book he read about Morabath, the village in in Cornwall. Yeah, I'm starting to uh, plunder the uh, the the university library at my school uh, for as many Catholic books as possible. Um, but, uh, it's very interesting, uh, just the, uh, sort of how, uh, Lord Marshmain was willing to actually jump ship into Catholicism originally, because they don't really go into that or he, the book doesn't really go into that, but I feel like that would have been a really interesting aspect to sort of understand. Well, we get the impression that Lord Marshmain really became a Catholic. Uh, in order to marry Lady Marshmain. In other words, it was it was a marriage of convenience. Um, and when it became inconvenient, he abandoned ship. Um, and clearly that he loved her presumably for certainly a large part of physical attributes because uh, she, he obviously could not live with her uh, as, the, as the Catholic presence in which he basically ran away from. Is it also because he kind of, it seemed like it might have been because he hated himself? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, ironically, Kara, uh, his concubine, is the most perceptive uh, in understanding the deeper psychological um, issues that both Lord Marshmain and Sebastian, as she likens the two of them together, it is a self-loathing 
and it's a projection of that self-loathing onto a scapegoat. Uh, and Lady Marshmaid is the scapegoat um, uh, for, for their own loathing of themselves. And the, the reason they loathe themselves is they know that they're not living up to uh, the moral uh, the moral goals that they've actually set for themselves. I mean, they know what's right. Uh, they know what they should be doing to do what's right. And yet they are not willing and or able to actually conform to that authentic moral understanding and that therefore there's a self-loathing and uh, the, the way that, that that self-loathing leads to a self-justification which which projects itself uh in finding a scapegoat and lady marshmallow is the scapegoat there's a moment in the book uh when Kara is describing sort of uh sort of how lord marshmallow uh loved uh loved lady marshmallow when he was young and and then basically comparing that to uh, Charles' love for Sebastian when he's young and sort of stating how, or, or I guess, yeah, Sebastian's love for Charles when he was young, when he's young and that it's not sustainable and that it uh, sort of, something about like everyone having that as, as in England or something. But it's, it, 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 it's uh, a sign of immaturity. The point is that authentic love requires dying to ourselves. It requires uh, an act of self-sacrificial death uh, of ourselves. And that's what authentic love is. And uh, when we're young, especially many of us, and I actually speak from my own personal experience, um, that uh, we are not capable of that maturity and that level of integrity uh, and responsibility that uh, allows us to sustain a self-sacrificial relationship. So the relationships we have are more superficial uh, and we're in them because it allows us to, to, to gratify our own desires. Uh, and that's of course, because it's rooted ultimately in selfishness is not actually destined to last. Julia's character, I feel like, is, um, is was surprisingly, as I went through the novel, the most interesting, I think, as it goes, because she sort of puts herself into the situation of uh, getting or marrying someone who's divorced. Well, not really marrying, I guess. Um, and then uh, almost doing the same thing, uh, but, you know, uh, twice with Charles. I feel like it's definitely an interesting thing to see as she pulls herself out of sort of that sinful life that she's put herself in, because I feel like it's virtually impossible to see almost in this modern day to see that even come out. Even yeah. Come I, I, again, the genius is that the working of divine grace there, because she finds herself in an awkward position uh, in, in which she certainly would not want to find herself. Her, her father's an extremist and the Catholic members of the family, uh, you know, Bridie uh, and Cordelia are not around. They're not available. So she is the family representative upon which the burden of making a decision as to whether or not to call a priest falls. There's no shirking of that responsibility because the Catholic members of the family who would presumably have taken the lead uh, are not around. And, and again, this is a perfect example of that invisible thread uh, that uh, War uses to show that th this is what prompted her. And let's let, let think of two, two wonderful metaphors, by the way, if you really want to understand Bryce who visited, you cannot ignore the two metaphors, both of which um, 
uh, reflect the re relationship between suffering and, and spiritual and emotional progress. So the first, of course, is to twitch upon the thread, right? Um, which is obviously a major part of it. But the other one, which is often overlooked, is the avalanche. Because uh, there's this metaphor where basically Charles and, and, and Julia are building this little home for themselves, which is like a, 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 a hut up in the, uh, in, in the high Alps. Um, and they, they, they're nice and cozy in this little well, but up higher on the, on, on, on the slopes, this snow is building up. And then what causes the avalanche, which destroys their world and leaves them with nothing, is not uh, anything violent. It's the warmth of the sun's rays warming the snow, which causes the avalanche. And this warming the sun's rays is, is a metaphor for grace. So yes, the, 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 divine, uh, the divine power destroys this temporary ultimately superficial happiness to replace it with something much deeper. But in selfish souls, that can only be done through violence, through suffering. And uh, uh, the analogy would be um, Oscar Wilde's wonderful lines from his poem, The Battle of the Reading Jail, when he says, um, but God's eternal laws are kind and break the heart of stone. For how else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in. Basically, the, the hardened hearts of Julia and Charles have to be broken through the violence of suffering in order for them to actually open those hearts to a more full understanding of what love truly is and therefore to be able to progress to a much happier level, the level of joy and not, and not transient pleasure. Do you think that um, it's... I guess there's any uh, similarities between, I guess, the flights or uh, Lady Marshmaid's family probably to like the Dukes of Norfolk? Um, well, yes, because the Dukes of Norfolk uh, are, is the most senior of those recusant families I mentioned. So they would be the most aristocratic of the aristocratic recusant families. So, yes, you can certainly see the, Duke of, the Dukes of Norfolk as, as being representative of the sort of Catholicism that Lady Marshmaid and her family represent. And, you know, uh, the Dukes of Norfolk, for the most part, stayed loyal to the faith through those 300 years. There were a couple of generations that faltered, and that's just, that's human nature. Um, there's no perfect thread, right, in that sense, um, except for the thread that's the, the grace of Christ and the metaphor. I thought it was surprising, or, or do you think it's surprising that sort of uh, no high arist aristocratic family isn't brought into the story sort of... Um, like any, like not not necessarily like the Dukes of Norfolk as they are in real life, but like um, I guess a version of that in this world that uh, that Evelyn Waugh is creating. Well, they are actually brought in uh, certainly indirectly. In uh, there's a discussion about you know the sort of man that Julia would like to marry. Uh, and it, it talks about, you know, at family gatherings, you have, a, 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 you know, one side of the room, the sort of aristocratic Catholic reticence on the other side of the room, Lord Marshmain sort of uh, more worldly uh, aristocrats and never the twain will meet. And the point is that, you know, you hear that as a Catholic, you no, know, she has the blue, she's blue blooded enough to be a possible royal 
to be married into the royal family, but her Catholicism makes that impossible. Um, uh, so who would be the right, the, the right sort of person? Well, you know, someone that would tolerate Catholicism, allow the children to be brought up Catholic, because that's sort of like, that's about sort of the ground zero that you can't go below. But other than that, he's not going to take religion too seriously so that she doesn't have to take religion too seriously. But you, see, you do have this world of the two aristocracies, the old Catholic aristocracy and the way they see things. And then uh, the, the, the secular aristocracy, if you like, and the way they see things, how the two, two worlds don't meet. They sit on opposite sides of the room. They, they, they talk amongst themselves. They don't talk to each other. And Julia somehow is caught sort of schizophrenically between these two worlds. Yeah, it's always, it's just frustrating to me when I'm reading it and it's like, when she's like, almost when she's settling for Rex and Rex is trying to become a Catholic and it's, it's just embarrassing. Well, it is, but also I find one, one thing that's delightful about Evening War is that he can, he can get to these subtle depths of spirituality in the, you know, in the, uh, the, the workings of grace and yet have this wonderful rambunctious sense of humor. I mean, the way that Cordelia um, uh, bamboozles uh, Rex uh, is some of the funniest pages in all of literature. I mean, it's laughed out loud funny. Um, you know that what um, the sacred was it, the sacred monkeys of the Vatican, and um, you know, and you have to sleep with your feet facing east, so that if you die, you can walk to heaven, and all this sort of nonsense. And of course, what it's showing first of all, Cordelia's delightful sense of humor. It humanizes her through the humor, but it also shows the superficiality and gullibility of Rex Montrum. Uh, and of course, by, by extension, somewhat scarily, this is a leading member of the government. These are the sort of people that actually run the world politically. I mean, it's scary. I wonder how many uh, of my classmates will uh, not get there aren't any sacred monkeys. <laughs> well, that's the whole point. I mean, that, that, you know, the, 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 uh, the tragedy is that the ignorance uh, uh, is all too real in our secular society. And, you know, the only thing that's worse than ignorance is the arrogance of ignorance. And that's what we're living in, a, a, a culture which is arrogant of its ignorance. Yeah. It, I've got uh, something there, actually, if you want to check it out on the Imagine Conservative uh, called Can't Read, Won't Read, Shakespeare in the Public Schools, which epitomizes this, that they, they don't understand Shakespeare at all. They've never actually comprehended anything that Shakespeare's read in all of his plays, but it doesn't stop them passing judgment on him as being guilty of all sorts of sins uh, of which he isn't guilty and of which they're not in a position to judge because they've never understood anything he's written. Doesn't stop them judging, though. That's the that's the arrogance of, arrogance of the ignorance. You can sit in judgment on others, even though you have no idea what it is they are saying or believing. The pride and prejudice. Pride and prejudice, exactly. Well, it's interesting just that that's my, the first book of the class that I'm taking, is Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a good class. Pride and Prejudice and Pride have been visited. But as you know, as, I, 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 as you know, that in the modern secular academy, these works that are sublimely beautiful and, 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 and um, point us in all sorts of um, profound directions as regards understanding the world in which we live and who we are within it uh, are, are, are butchered. They're butchered uh, in, in English departments today. And um, it's, uh, it's uh, on, a, on one level, it's tragic. On a deeper level, I suspect it's divinely comic. You, you gave a talk one time about Shakespeare and I thought it, it was very... Uh there was something that really stuck with me and it was that uh, sort of, um, what was it? It was that, uh, dang it. Um, what were you saying right before that? 
you're saying uh, that um, people don't understand him because uh, they don't, un they never understood him? No, they basically, they, they, they probably were taught him badly at school, um, uh, whether at uh, high school level or undergraduate level, they taught him badly by, by a teacher who didn't understand him, uh, bringing out elements that aren't even there and not bringing out elements that are. Um, they probably didn't enjoy it because, uh, because they're not getting the beauty of Shakespeare, they get the ugliness of someone's misunderstanding of Shakespeare. Therefore, they've dismissed Shakespeare. They haven't really ever really read him. They've certainly never understood him, but it doesn't stop them passing judgment. Yeah. Um, so, but, and it's interesting just because, uh, well, like uh, in the university system, there's, you know, in the book too, is like, uh, you know, Charles is, Charles kind of abandons his Oxford, Oxfordian life. And just like even Wad does that too in real life, doesn't he? Yes, I mean further parallels between between Charles and, and, and Evening War as we were discussing earlier. Yeah, and he wanted to be uh, even while wanted to be an artist, didn't he? Uh, he had aspirations to be an artist as did, as did Chesterton, but I really think that artist really is a euphemism for writer. In other words, you oh. know, the, the important thing is that that the, he is giving his life to his muse. Right, he's he's sacrifice, sacrificing. Not chosen to sacrifice much, um, but um, you know he basically he's devoting his life to his art, uh, and and uh, whether the art is 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 the uh, visual arts or, with, or the literary arts is not really neither here nor there. I mean, the Greek word mythopoeia, literally the making of stories, really applies to the sub talking called sub creation. You know, the, the, the gifts we have to actually make other things. That's that creative gift is what's been talked about then. That it's that's that's the that's uh, philosophically that's the substance. Uh, whether it's the visual arts or, or literary arts is the accidental aspect of it. It's not the it's not the, the, the it's not not the being of the thing. Yeah. Well, uh, regarding like the way uh, even Wass sets things up, so there are problems and like uh basically uh problems with the aspect of charles wanting to marry julia and it really is interesting because i was very surprised when he was married like with like kind of off the you know page he's already married and you know he has two kids and you know and the way he sort of sets everything even while sets everything up so that even though originally uh, Julia and Charles probably could have been married in a legitimate sense. He sets himself up for his own failure. Yeah, I mean, he had he he like there, there are parallels between the two. I mean, that uh, that like Julia, Charles gets himself involved in a selfish marriage, short sighted. With uh, in fact, his wife's much better than he is. That might be one thing that's different. I think we all might agree that Rex is the worst of the two. Uh, however, selfish Julia might, might be. She try to have a child she tried to be a good husband and uh you know he he was unfaithful from before they got married and remained unfaithful after they got married so you know, rex is is not a good person uh we get you know, the, the the impression that charles's wife actually is a better person than, than charles's and he's the one that abandons the relationship uh he's the one that abandons his children uh a pure in fact wicked uh in a wicked way when he's reunited with his wife the way that he talks to her um the, the way that he dismisses her um 
reduces her to tears and, and abandons his own children. And so right at the end, you know, he says to Hooper that I, I forfeited my right, you know, to be a father, to, to you know, that I've thrown all that away. Yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting that he doesn't get to the revisited part, you know, he, uh, Charles doesn't see Julia or Cordelia or any of the uh, members of the family, though he does talk to Nan the Nanny Hawk Nanny Hawkins, uh, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, well, right at the end, though, again, you, you got you, you've got to look for this invisible presence of grace because you know uh, where are um, the the rest of the family? Um, obviously, Sebastian is on the edge of a monastery. So sort of uh, at least on the penumbra of the religious life, um, as far as he's able with it, with his issues. Um, but the rest of the family are united. Um, that's what that's basically the, we get from the letter that Cordelia sends home that, that Julia Russell would note at the bottom of. They're re reunited with Bridie's regiment. And where? Well, in Palestine. All right. So, you know, this is really, you know, that the, the family are now united in the Holy Land and, that, you know, and the metaphorical Holy Land, again, is, 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 the, is the mystical body of Jesus Christ. So this is the way that the war with, with subtle dexterity um, imbues the work with a subsumed providential dimension that the, that the protagonist is god himself working in the lives of these families and how do you say that well you say with this sort of subtlety with the metaphor of the avalanche with the metaphor of the fishing line with the metaphor of them being reunited in the holy land and this is the way you do it he does it with, with absolute masterful dexterity he's a great storyteller and a great novelist yeah it's one of those books that you really have to be thinking throughout the entire read and you can return to over and over again and find, discover new things. Great literature is, is like, it's almost like a, well, it is a living thing, which means it's not static. You go back to it and, and there were things you missed first time or second time or third time uh, that, that, that come, to, come to life and come to life. Not that contradicts. If you made an objective, correct reading, doesn't contradict your early reading. It enriches and, 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 and fleshes uh, your earlier readings. Yeah, a, a modern... Uh, English professor would probably say would uh, probably say that something that it changes something in the in the in the book or something if it uh, right exactly that basically you're, you're you're the person that, that makes the story up not the person that's that this should be in awe at the brilliance of the story that's told to you I mean it's all about pride and prejudice on the one hand are we reading uh, with the arrogance of our own ignorance or are we reading with the humility of being on our knees in the presence of something bigger than we are uh, you know, and if we can't write a we can't write a novel like *Rise Revisited*, and I'm absolutely sure none of us can, because very few people can in the history of the world. We can't write a novel of, of the brilliance of of of, of *Rise Revisited*. We should at least have the humility and the honesty to read it on our knees. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, what's the point of writers if you're just gonna take something and you know make up whatever you're gonna make up for yourself? Yeah. You basically, you're squeeze you're squeezing something which is much bigger than you are into the, the, the minute space, which is your own ego. Uh, and to believe that that bubble, which you surround yourself with, that egocentric cosmos uh, is larger than the real cosmos that's bigger than you is preposterous. And yet that really is at, at the heart of a relativistic understanding of things. It really is amazing how they all end up in the Holy Land in that, in that uh, moment. And uh, it feels like even law is predicting in the book that sort of the aristocracy is going to sort of 
collapse completely as from an economic perspective. That's well, the, the, the thing about that aspect of it is that, that the, a, a, an aspect of reality uh, is mutability and mortality. That there's, uh, as, as, as uh, War mentions in other places, uh, quoting St. Augustine of Hippo, this is no abiding city. Um, that there's, there's nothing in this side of the grave which is uh, permanent, except those things that transcend the grave. <laughs> so goodness, truth, and beauty, those things that will exist beyond the grave uh, are real in this world and in that sense unchanging. But everything which is physical is passing away. Um, everything which is solely human uh, is passing away. Uh, and so that, that, this, this idea of this aristocratic world, the, the world of Brideshead, the world of Marsh Main House in London, which is closed down physically during the novel, uh, is, is just a reminder that don't basically invest the deepest aspects of your being in this world, because this world is passing away, as indeed are you, uh, except uh, if there's such a thing as God, and that, that your soul transcends the physical limitations of the, of the world in which it finds itself, including it's the body. Yeah, it seems like Lady Marshmane in the big in an earlier part of the book, uh, when she's discussing sort of how she was poor, not poor, but poor. And uh, when she married, she became rich. And she's talking about how to sort of sanctifying, I think, sort of what you have, I guess. And he and Charles brings up the camel and the needle, um, you know, that a camel can't get through the needle. Um, what do you think about that whole interaction? What do you think uh, it's sort of trying to tell us? Well, I think that one thing about Lady Marshall, she's a complex character. Uh, and and I, I, want to, I, want to, I want to say what I, what, what I think the important aspect of Lady Marshall is in a moment, but clearly she's not, she's actually in some sense closer to, to Sebastian than to Bridie in her understanding of the faith. It's, um, more an aesthetic experience based upon the beauty of it rather than a rational experience based upon the truth of it. Now, of course, you know, on the deepest level, whether it's whether it's the Socratic level or whether it's the Thomistic level, both of which basically dovetail anyway, um, the good, the true and the beautiful are triune. They're actually a reflection of the Trinity. You can't separate goodness from truth. But if you don't fully understand truth or beauty, you can, uh, uh, try to divorce one from the other, and and so so Sebastian doesn't really get the faith because he doesn't understand the rational underpinnings of it. Um, uh, Lady Marshmain, in complete pouring her, herself out in her faith, so she has the goodness, you know, love, goodness, synonymous. She has the attraction to the beauty of it, but she doesn't have the the, the rational. Uh, comprehension of it, which Bridey with his Jesuit understanding, his Jesuit education does have. Let me, let me finish, finish though with Lady Marshman, because when I, um, when uh, I, I've taught Bridesaid, one of my favorite essay prompts when I teach Bridesaid is Lady Marshman, innocent or guilty, question mark. Uh, and what the student has to do is to give the case for the prosecution and the case for the defense. So showing that they understand both sides of, 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 of the question, uh, and then to act as judge based upon the evidence presented. So that's the paper. 
Um, and what I and what I the, the, again, it's like this metaphor thing because on a worldly level, if you don't understand the level of grace uh, on which the novel aspires and I think succeeds in its aspiration, um, then you see that Lady Marshmaid is the problem because while she's alive, all of her family are getting further and further away from the church and further and further away from her, right? She's alienating everybody. Uh, and then she dies. And when she dies, everyone starts sort of coming back, right? So you can think, well, she was the problem. She was the sort of catalyst that was causing the explosion away from. And when she's gone, then people can sort of drift back towards it. But that, uh, of course, is a not fully Catholic understanding of what happens. Because when someone dies, unless they, if, if they, as long as they avoid hell, um, um, if someone dies, they don't leave the story. So there's two ways in which they, they're still part of the story. Their presence as memory and inspiration, but also their presence as real people who are able to intercede through prayer and, and therefore to, um, um, to achieve the bestowal of grace upon people through their intercessionary prayer. Lady Marshmaine, she dies with the, fortified with the last rites of the church. We can be fairly sure she's not in hell, right? Um, so uh, from the eternal perspective, she is still a protagonist and not just in, 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 in the sense of being a memory. She's a protagonist in, 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 in the sense of being an active participant in the story in continuing to pray for Sebastian for Charles, for Cordelia, for Julia, um, uh, who have I missed out, for Bridie, right? Uh, and so when all of these start converging back towards the mystical presence of Christ uh, in reconciliation with the church in various ways or conversion in, in Charles's case, uh, you know, we can actually see that the twitch upon the thread might be the prayers of the deceased Lady Marshmaine, who is not dead in the, in, in the absolute sense of the word, but in fact, in some sense of the word, if she's in heaven, she's now fully alive, which she wasn't before her death. So this is the sort of the, the dimension of the novel that we're being invited, I would suggest, to, um, to, to uh, should we say, to move into that, the fullness of that spiritual understanding of things, which the novel itself is an invitation for us to do. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, Lady Marshmaid is really interesting, especially because Cordelia, I thought, I'm not sure if this is an like an accurate way of describing her, but I thought her description of her mother uh, about how uh, basically people hate her, but they're not really hating her. I think it was something about her hating um, or them hating God, but they can't hate God and they can't and hating uh there was somebody else that they were hating. No, basically, they, 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 it's their hatred of God and the hatred of themselves, and they project that hatred onto her, which is the, which is the classic scapegoat syndrome, right? So basically, Lady Marshmaine is serving as the scapegoat for their own uh, anger with God. I mean, as, as I say, no one can really hate God, um, but you can be angry with him. Uh, and they project that anger uh, onto Lady Marshmaid. She becomes the scapegoat for um, for their own imperfect, inadequate understanding of their faith. Do you, do you think there's an answer or a correct answer to your sort of question you pose? Uh, like, uh, is she guilty or is she innocent? Or 
is it a well, I, th I think that's why it's important to give the case for the prosecution, the defense. Mm -hmm. um, she's clearly not the most lovable person. Um, she, she clearly is fixated on her deceased brothers, which is fair enough uh, on one level. But, you know, you, you hear about the photographs of her, um, her brothers who were killed in World War One um, in her in her private room. You don't hear about photographs of her own children. Um, you you, you don't, don't imagine her being tactile. All right. Um, uh, in, in her re, in her body language with her children. So she's cold. And I think that uh, that is a flaw in her character, uh, which makes it more difficult for people to love her. So she's a flawed individual. And yet it's made perfectly clear on several occasions. Um, you know, for instance, when Sebastian learns the news that her mo his mother's dying, the first thing he does is look up at the audiograph on the wall, which shows the seven laws of, of Mary. In other words, you know, the, the seven sorrows of the Blessed Virgin, likening his mother and her suffering to the, to, to the suffering of the, of, the, of the mother of Christ. So, um, uh, and again, other, Julia says the same thing, you know, basically, her, uh, and Cordelia, you know, her mother going to mass before it gets light, you know, in the dark, in the morning, praying for her children. So for whatever her uh, character flaws, uh, which I think, relatively speaking, are superficial, her love for Christ and her love for her family, if we're measuring love by the uh, the correlative the empirical correlative of the extent to which we sacrifice ourselves for others um then clearly she loved her family uh, in a practical sense um and i do believe that it's her prayers in the second half of the book uh which is drawing them back so you know i would find her innocent of the charges against her and the other very important thing is you know who's saying it most of the if if, if you're given the case for the prosecution Right. You know what you're doing. You're not giving um, uh, evidence of what she did. You're giving evidence of what people said she did. I mean, so in other words, most of the case of the prosecution would be things that that uh, Julia and um, and Sebastian say about her. Um, uh, well, they are not impartial witnesses. Um, so, you know, so if you, if you judge her by her actions and not why what not by the way that people judge her actions, um, I, 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 I think you ex largely exonerate her. So yes, I find her innocent. Yeah, I think one of the last things we should talk about is uh, Lord Marshmain's death and sort of Charles's participation, sort of uh, his uh, prayer uh, at, right before uh, Lord Marshmain shows a sign of, of penitence. Yeah, I mean, for me, that, 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 that's a passage in the, in the book that's one of the most moving things I've ever read, and I've never been able to read it out loud in front of a class without my voice uh, cracking. Um, that's how much it impacts me. But so the beautiful thing, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So the Catholic members of the family aren't around. So Julia, the black sheep, is the only one there to actually make the decision to bring the priest in. Uh, and then the priest is administering the last rites, um, it's Charles, who's not even believing in God. So he's making a prayer to a God he doesn't even know is there as an act of love, not of God. You can't love someone you don't even know is there, but as a love for Julia, uh, even though he knows he's about to lose Julia. And in fact, this enactment of the last rites is, if you like, the catalyst that's going to destroy their uh, relationship. 
um, that he loves her nonetheless and prays as an act of self-sacrificial love for the woman he loves. And it's that act of self-sacrifice that is accepted by God, even though the prayer is only indirectly to God because God's a sort of vacuum, doesn't know he's there, um, is a perfect example of the brilliance of uh, Ward's writing and the brilliance of divine grace, that it will take, uh, not begrudgingly, but especially the sin, the, the prayers of, of, of the black sheep, the prayers of, uh, of the prodigal son um, uh, over, over the, uh, the righteous, right? God doesn't come to call the righteous, but to sinners. And so it, it, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful climate. I mean, it's a little bit goes on after that, but it's really the climactic moment of the whole work. It's a bit like you know, an, an analogy. You don't think about you know, comparing Bryce who visited with the Lord of the Rings. But, you know, but, but, but the Lord of the Rings, the climatic man, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, the destruction of the ring. And, there, and there's more that carries on after that. And, and it's important that carries on after that. Bryce said the climatic moment is the conversion of Lord Marshmain, but that what happens after that is important. And in actual fact, the very understated epilogue where we learn of Charles's conversion is, if you like, the final coup de grace. But it's like a, it's a, like a subtle um, featherlight um, uh, coup de grace climax rather than this clash of symbols that we see with Lord Marshmain. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that's the best way to end it at this point. Um, uh, thank you for coming on, Joseph. Uh, it's been wonderful having you. Uh, do you want to send anywhere, anybody, any place to find your stuff or, or to? Well, if people want to check out my own work, the, the, my own personal website's the place to go, and that's jpierce.co. Okay. Sounds good. Um, really, thank you. It's an honor having you. And, uh, it's been a splendid conversation and it makes me like Brideshead even more. Well, that was the idea. I mean, I, I love talking about Brideshead Revisited and I love sharing my enthusiasm with it for other people that, that have that enthusiasm. So it's been a joy for me too. Thank you all for watching and catch us next time. Have a good one.